in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson. How are you doing today, sir? It's spooky season. I am pumped. By the way... Chad normally says he's pumped and it doesn't sound pumped. You actually sound pumped today. (laughs) (laughs) And joining us today, I'm also pumped. We have returned for the second time on the show, Ms. Lindsay Washburn from the great state of Iowa. How are you doing, Lindsay? I'm good. I'm really excited you guys asked me to come back because I I had so much fun. We talked about Jaws, if I'm correct. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. That was a really fun episode. Talking about my favorite movie of all time. You can't beat that, so... It was a very good episode, and I also love Jaws. It's way up there for me, too. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little bit, uh, even though it's summertime beach, I still think it's scary enough that you can enjoy it in October, too. Completely reasonable. Oh, yeah. It's always a good time for Jaws. Yeah. (laughs) Christmas time? Sure. Oh, yes. There's a movie called Santa Jaws, so it is out there. (laughs) I think the Jaws the Revenge, it opens around Christmas time. Oh, okay. The, okay. the opening scenes are during Christmas, so unofficial Christmas movie, I guess. Christmas horror movie. Yeah, hot, t- <laughs> hot take Jaws 3D is worse than Jaws the Revenge. Oh, I love Jaws mm. 3D just because it's, it's just, it's the whole SeaWorld thing and Leah Thompson <laughs> is in it and, and Dennis Quaid and it's just so crazy. <laughs> it is. So for those who don't know, Lindsay is coming into us. She has a YouTube channel. Is that right, Lindsay? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. On YouTube, it's uh, just my name, Lindsay Washburn. And it's Lindsay with an A, not with an E. A lot of people like to spell it with an E, but it's with an A. And I do movie reviews, and I talk about my VHS collection and, and all sorts of stuff movie-related. Well, that is the reason you are here, but also... You've also taken your efforts over to the Bad Movie Night podcast. Is this true? Yes. Uh, the guys over at Bad Movie Night asked me to become a permanent member just a couple years ago. And we watch a lot of bad movies and then we talk about them and play fun games. And, and if you're a patron, you get to recommend movies to us to watch. And we choose a, a patron recommended film every other week. So you can either listen to bad hosts talk about good movies on Retro Movie Roundtable, <laughs> or you can listen to good hosts talk about bad movies on Lindsay's, there you go. The Bad Movie Night there you podcast. Go. So, um, it's, they're, they're companion pieces. Mm-hmm. And it all averages out to total mediocrity together. So there we go. Oh, yes. Yes. That's what I shoot for. Yes. Uh, Lindsay, now you talk a lot about your VHS collection. You just mentioned it here. What part makes you love the VHS players and tapes? so much that you're still enjoying them today. Well, I mean, anyone who says it it has nothing to do with with nostalgia is lying, I think, a little bit. But there's still a ton of films that you cannot find anywhere but on VHS, especially certain cuts, things like that. And I'm also a very tactile person. I like having the tape in my hand and looking at the box cover art. I think, like, DVD and Blu-ray cover art 
at least for major releases, is is not what it used to be. You you get all these lovely, especially with horror, these lovely hand drawn illustrated covers for horror, and they're very interesting and. And I actually talk about this a lot in the documentary, The Cult of VHS, which is coming soon to a streaming platform near you. (laughs) This is exciting. So is there a particular movie cover that you have an affinity for, Lindsay? Oh, man. The original Evil Dead. Oh, yeah. She has a wall of VHS behind her, which I know (laughs) we're all audio. So but uh, nevertheless, it's an impressive backdrop. Uh, my favorite, my favorite part is you could fast forward through the VH, the FBI warning faster than you can now when they just say no, I won't let you skip through them anymore. Right. So, um, yeah, Sony and their unskippable trailers. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah, and a lot of times, especially with things like uh, full moon pictures, stuff like that, there's little making of little vignettes at the end, at, end after the credits or little commercials where you can buy merchandise. Well, not anymore, but you could at the time when the VHS came out. So there's there's all these little things that are really cool about VHS. If you have an old rental tape, there's really cool stickers. It's kind of a nerdy hobby, but I enjoy it. I like to think that the phone number at the end of that to buy merchandise from like ET or something like that, it's, yeah. it's been reassigned to somebody else. And I like to think that somebody is sitting there going like, I'd like to buy the E.T. doll, please. <laughs> and, and the person's like, stop calling For the last you. time. <laughs> My name's Brian. I'm a normal dude. Stop calling here. It's like how NORAD became the Santa tracking because everyone was trying to call the North Pole and wound up calling NORAD. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, Lindsay, what was the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw in the theater was Barbarian, which I absolutely loved. I think we're starting to see this renaissance of just crazy horror films like last year with Malignant. (laughs) Pearl is coming out this weekend and they just announced the the third movie in the X trilogy, Maxine. So I'm very excited for that. So it's it's a good time for for crazy horror movies right now. Yeah. Now, Chad, I'm guessing you or last movie was also a horror movie. It was. It was the same one. Weirdly for me. I didn't go into either of the two movies knowing what I was getting, but my last two 2022 movies both had Justin Long in them. So I saw saw House of Darkness, which is Justin and his real-life wife. It's kind of like a stage play. It's it's fun. And then there's Barbarian, which Lindsay kind of nailed. I really, really enjoyed it. I want to make a comparison to another somewhat modern movie, but it would ruin the movie. So I Yeah, can't. it's like this this movie, I've tried so hard not to spoil it for anybody and just tell, tell people, just go see it. Don't watch the trailer, which doesn't really give that much away anyways, but I'm just like, just go see the movie. Just go see yes. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is the best recommendation you can do. So that's, that's the, mm-hmm. the just see it. I don't need to tell you why. I just see it. That was the best record. Just see it. Yeah. My last movie was Mulan, so it's the opposite of what you guys just saw. 90- just a little little different. Yeah, the 98 <laughs> version with Eddie Murphy. So Okay. Um, All right. Did it make a man out of you? Uh, I think so. I think so. Um, <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to cover what movie, Chad? Speaking of terrifying VHS covers, the one that haunted me from my childhood Hellraiser from 1987. That's right. Hellraiser is made for $1 million in the year of 1987. It grosses domestically $14.5 million, so it's actually quite successful given its investment. It comes in at the box office at 77 just behind Batteries Not Included and above Ishtar. And the number one movie that year is Beverly Hills Cop 2. IMDb gives Hellraiser not that high, a 6.9 
percent rating. Critics of Rotten Tomatoes are pretty close at 71%. Audience score pretty close as well at 72%. Not the highest of ratings, but also not terrible either. Lindsay, this obviously isn't your first time with Hellraiser. What was your first time with Hellraiser and what was it like coming back to it today? Truth be told, Hellraiser is one of my more favorite horror movies, especially when it comes to body horror. The first time I saw this was probably back in the early 90s and rented it on VHS, you know, sleepover, and we watched it and I couldn't get over the shock of what I was seeing with all this body horror stuff going on and flesh ripping and, you know, uh, BDSM demons all over the place and a guy with pins coming out of his head. And I've watched it over a hundred times since then. And I love going back to it, especially as I got older because it wasn't so much about that shock value for me, but some of the other things going on within the story that that really made it one of my more favorite horror movies. Yeah. It, it, do you feel like it's holding up for you over the years? Like, does it, it when something has initial shock value, I find it doesn't age as well. Is there more for you mm-hmm. than, than that initial shock? I mean, it's. I think it's still a very gross body horror movie. The the practical effects in this are are really really good, especially for the budget that they had. And they're very very wet and gross looking, and the <laughs> the the sound design that goes along with it. So I mean, a few things still get me a little bit, but for me, that's faded quite a bit since my initial viewing. Okay, so it is. So it's changing over time. How about you, Chad? What is? Oh yeah. W- w- is this your first time with Hellraiser? No, no, certainly not. And I, I told Russell, I went through the entire Hellraiser series before this podcast, which uh, it it was one of those Anchorman scenarios of I regret this decision immediately. <laughs> <laughs> like, if if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the series, there are ten of these. There's about to be eleven basically five through 10 were different movies that Cenobites get thrown into randomly when the scripts don't hold up. So to mixed results, but yeah, it, this took me a while to get to, because like I said, I remember this VHS cover. We passed it at the grocery store. Grocery stores used to have a video rental section and that's where I distinctly remember it and just kind of avoiding it. And I probably didn't get to this movie until college so i i was in my 20s when i saw it and i i liked it i liked the design it's something the million dollar budget clearly shows through like i wish that clive barker had more experience when he made this movie i wish Mm -hmm. that he had more money this is probably the highest potential franchise that's just kind of struggled to realize that potential. It's got so many cool things going mm-hmm. for it, though. Yeah, and I'm, my story is very similar to yours, Chad. I remember seeing this in the VHS rental store, and the cover, as you just walk around the store, the cover sticks out of the horror section by far as being, to me, one of the most mm-hmm. striking of, like, and then my head's like, that looks like the scariest movie ever. Like, ever <laughs> right. made. It's called Hellraiser. So. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I remember even, like, getting out of the car 
walking out and sitting into the uh, passenger seat, which you were allowed to do uh, at at that age. Uh, I was I was small, and like I was still sitting in the passenger seat of the car, looking through the window of the rental store, and still seeing Penhead's face look at me through the glass because <laughs> it was on the first shelf. And I was like, I was like, ah, oh my gosh, stop looking at me, Penhead. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm with you, Chad. I was a little bit frightened to approach it. I didn't get into horror movies until later in college, and I didn't pick this one up until I got out of college. So it took me a while to brave up. And I'll be honest with you, I was really surprised. I liked this movie, and it was not just gore fest. In fact, I don't tend to like gore driven movies where like the gore is the reason we're all here and why we've gathered today. It's to me, it is. It's got more going for it. There's more character development than I would have expected. And I'm with Chad. There's moments in this where you're sitting there going like, oh, this is, there's something really good here. And they couldn't afford maybe better actors or some of the effects weren't brought to full fruition. To me, it's one of those, this is almost great. But then, then it was held back by limitations at the time. Oh, definitely. But we're going to get into it today. and We're going to spoil this movie. And I will say, I do think it holds up, by the way. I think it holds up remarkably well the effects still look amazing and that's that to me is just really impressive that they had so little money and it still looks as good as it does to me so we will spoil this movie and we will be back after these messages welcome to the all 80s movies podcast i'm bill And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. We're back, and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad... Without further ado, will you give us a refresher for those who haven't seen Hellraiser since 1987? Sexual deviant Frank Cotton buys a puzzle box that's rumored to open a door to otherworldly pleasure. Unfortunately for Frank, what it actually does is tear him apart with hooks in his attic. Frank's brother Larry and his wife Julia move into Frank's house, and while moving some furniture, Larry cuts his hand and the blood falls onto the place Frank was killed resurrecting him in skinless form. The returned Frank, who had an affair with Julia, convinces her to kill other men who she lures to the attic in order to fully restore Frank. Larry's daughter, Kirsty, catches Frank and Julia in the act and steals the puzzle box before collapsing. She awakens in the hospital and solves the box, summoning the Cenobites, who are perpetually looking for carnal experiences. They attempt to take Kirsty back to their realm before Kirsty claims to know where Frank is. The Cenobites agree to spare Kirsty in exchange for Frank, who has now killed Julia's dad and is wearing his skin. Frank accidentally kills Julia while attacking Kirsty and admits to her that it's not really him, it's not Larry, but it is indeed Frank Cotton. The Cenobites emerge from the shadows to rip him to pieces. Kirsty then banishes the Cenobites by reversing the motions of the puzzle box. 
She tosses the box onto a fire, but a vagrant walks by and retrieves it before turning into a winged creature and flying away. We then see the same merchant that sold the box to Frank selling the box to another unwitting customer. Yes, and so this is the movie that will make you think twice before ever picking up a Rubik's Cube ever again. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Cenobite. This is Latin for communal religious order describing monastic life. So these are kind of monks of their cult here. Am I wrong in saying the Cenobites are the headliner of why we watch this movie, Lindsay? Oh, yeah. They're, they're definitely getting you to go into the circus tent, <laughs> so to speak. You've got Doug Bradley as Pinhead on the, that VHS cover that scared so many of us. <laughs> that was the draw to get people in. And I think while that is a very important part of the story, it's not the full story. Yeah, I do think it's fascinating that Clive Barker didn't feel like the Cenobites were the end-all, be-all villain. Like He was trying to center the franchise around Julia. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was changed in the end, and everyone latched on to Pinhead, which, by the way, Clive Barker hates that name. <laughs> Russell, Russell's talking about religious order. He calls Pinhead the priest. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what he's called. But yeah, it was supposed to center around Julia. Instead, everyone loves Pinhead. Mm-hmm. So serendipity, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and Butterball, Pinhead, the chatterer, and the female. I guess if you don't name your characters. You're going to have nicknames, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I feel bad for the female Cenobite. Like, that's her official name because everyone was just really crude about it. Like, Very crude. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know if I could say it. Russell's going to bleep me out. But <laughs> they had a different name concerning her throat because she has that. Uh, it's not that bad. It, 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 I mean, it's it, the name of a, of a, of a, a you know, a classic film. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also scandal. the name of a character yes. from the X-Files. You can say it. It's Deep, deep Throat. Deep Throat yeah, is, is, deep what, throat. is what it was initially called, yeah. and she became known as the female more sensitively, because if there's anything this movie is, it's sensitive. Oh, yes. <laughs> You're right. The earliest drafts, uh, it's interesting. Like, he had a hard time getting this made because Jason was big into full effect here in the 80s. In fact, I thought I was getting in for pretty slashy, bloody. Late 80s, I feel like the quality is starting to shift to the 90s where this is not the best era for horror. And we've talked about this on what is the best era for horror episode. It's interesting that these are not monstrous creatures. Like, they kind of were under the silent killer, like Michael Myers or the funny guy like Freddy Krueger. Producers felt like there was a formula established by this point and they wanted more of it. The Cenobites don't do that. They're kind of smart. They're intelligent. They're articulate. They're pretty calm about it. They're just going to tear you apart. And that's different than a lot of the other things that are going on. I think I like that. I think you need something to stand out. In the era, we had Nightmare on Elm Street. You referenced the Friday the 13th franchise yeah you need something that stands out and the producers did want the Cenobites to be more funny they wanted them to be closer to a Freddy Krueger and thankfully Clive Barker stood his ground and said this this will set them apart that I'm gonna make them aloof but also intelligent Mm-hmm. And Freddy, Freddy Krueger's intelligent, but he's just a different character, different animal altogether. So, yeah, I, I think it was a very wise decision. They are the star of this show. And my criticism of every Hellraiser movie, whether it's meant to be a Hellraiser movie or not, is I want more of these guys. 
they do not get enough screen time. They're just so fascinating. You're just drawn in by these odd, odd characters. So what you're saying is you want a road trip comedy with the four of these guys. I, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I want Pinhead saying something like, you opened the McDonald's, we came. <laughs> I, I would imagine at some point on this road trip that Chatterer would get his tongue stuck on a pole frozen like in the wintertime a la a christmas story very good very good yes butterballs thanksgiving yes oh yeah there's no yeah you won't look at turkeys the same way again after this but um <laughs> doug bradley's just screaming i will turn this car around That's <laughs> don't do it he, he just has this strange manner of speaking that i love so much and like you were saying how he wanted to make them, you know, a more intelligent villain. I mean, it does set them apart because you don't really have that in any of the other like main horror icons, I guess. Not that dignified, refined type of intelligence. Like he's like he's they're like the Hannibal Lecters. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we hadn't even had Hannibal yet. Yeah, and it's interesting they say they're not an angel or a demon. Mm -mm. And later on, they kind of explore that these used to be human beings mm -hmm. that were transformed, but they're not really on a side. They're just... <laughs> no, they're neutral. They're not involved in, in anything else but what they're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, they don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. They will tear your soul apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do not care. Yeah, they're merciless forces of nature. Mm-hmm. Later, this shifts, as Chad mentioned. I got to the third movie, and I didn't have it in me to keep going after that one because the, <laughs> the, the character of what they are and how they're used changes, and I think the films suffer for it as well. Let's just say where this franchise goes, because you, you got to three, and I explained this to you a little bit, but the fourth one starts in space, as all good franchises mm -hmm. like this do. Leprechaun went to space. Jason X eventually space. gets there. So we, we do have that. Then it goes to 18th century France. <laughs> and after France, we go to 1996, because of course we do. And then we go back to space. There, <laughs> back to space there again? There is Hellraiser 4 for you. And if that sounds intriguing, check it out. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that they need it in space, but... Another thing this movie does, beyond the body horror, that I don't want to be judgmental of anyone's thing here that turns anybody on, but pain, blood, hurting people, hooks, and murder, these things do not turn me on. <laughs> the line with seeing people get pleasure from that makes me personally uncomfortable in a horror movie sort of way. So, like, I'm all willing in an exchange of power, black attire, goth look, slightly evil, dark eye shadow, girl in control, guy in control, like, whatever. This is all willing fun. But open wounds, hooks, being impaled, blood, this is kind of scary for me. So, uh, like, you start hurting people, cutting people up, and blood spewing, I'm out of here. <laughs> this makes me uncomfortable in a way that's just... It's the, but, but in that, though, is there's a juxtaposition of pleasure, fun, sex, with brutality, violence, and pain. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting perspective that this movie brings it's not just all it's not just all gore so it's not just the gore making you feel uneasy we have good characters too which i also like uh i like kirsty and i 
definitely do not like Julius. She's such a good bad guy. <laughs> it's, it's it's tragic. It's hard to watch her lure these dopes into her attic. Yeah. By the way, who walks into this room? It's such a murder room. I mean, she's like, hey, come on to this grody attic with a vile looking paper on the window and rough floorboards ready to give you splinters just by walking by them. And uh, not to mention the smell of death. I mean, uh, I'm going to say hard pass, lady. I'm not going in that room. Nice try. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm calling you. If you're a single, middle-aged, unattractive man in an and you've had room, like three martinis, you might you might do a lot of things that right. you wouldn't see yourself doing. Yeah. <laughs> but you gotta admit, this is a scary room. That's though. true. It's very scary. It is very scary for me. Yeah, I do. I do like all of the characters as well. I like Kirsty. I really love the character of Julia. She's one of my favorite underrated like horror villains because people kind of forget about her because, you know, everyone, lo like you said, everyone loves Pinhead. But she's one of the worst things in this movie. She's one of the worst people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and she, you see this turn from her of her character and I mean she'll do anything for Frank and she's like the ultimate ride or die people I guess <laughs> yeah what I saw a take on this and I I still don't know that I've interpreted it that way but someone had a take that Frank raped Julia in the beginning and then it turned into an affair I I've watched this you've watched it a hundred times Lindsay. yeah I've never taken it that way He's definitely very manipulative in the situation. He he has the power in that situation, I would say. I mean, I, I don't know if I would go as far as to say, you know, that it's rape, but it's definitely invasive. He he uh <laughs> he was taking control of that situation and the power dynamic is all with him in that relationship. She'll do anything for him. Yeah. Yeah, and that draws her to him. Mm-hmm. In a weird way. Very twisted, very, very twisted way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes her such a good villain. She's mentally broken in mm -hmm. that way. She's fixated on him in the way that it haunts her. Yeah, like when they have those flashbacks when she's looking at the picture. And she looks very different in those flashbacks. She's much softer. She's not so severe looking like with her haircut or her makeup or her outfits. And I, I love how they, they show these subtle changes in the character because, I mean, she's marrying Larry, who's not the most exciting man, <laughs> you know, in, in, in Julia's eyes. And then all of a sudden, Frank comes over and he's this very domineering, take control, misogynistic, toxic kind of man. And that opens this kind of hidden part of her that she's kept secret and it kind of plays into you know how the box opens doorways people can open doorways for other people mm, okay so this is adapted on a novel the hellbound heart mm -hmm. and there are changes from this book and mm -hmm. one of them is how the encounter between frank and julia goes they exchanged more sex-based activities with the original intent of that scene, which they had a hard time getting past censors and getting it made in its own right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they, so they exchanged violence for sex, as is so often done in American cinema. Because yes. Because mm -hmm. the American culture is just more comfortable with showing violence than sex in our society. So it became Frank pulling out a knife and cutting off Julia's clothes. So whereas that was not 
necessarily the initial intention. No. But there was bondage and spanking, nudity, thrusting, and things like that, which also will enrage the censors. So it became a more violent version, Chad, than what Clive Barker initially wanted. So I don't think the intent was to imply that. No. I think he just wanted to get his movie made. And it became... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, his... I, I love... His mom attended the showing with him. She was crying tears of joy for Clive Barker, mm -hmm. seeing his name up there. And he leans over to her and says, this is the last time you're going to be happy for the next two hours. Yep. <laughs> but but yeah, it, he made a very different movie. And if if you know anything about Clive Barker, he's kind of working through his own sexuality and, and putting that in this story. But a lot of things... Uh, Again, with serendipity, Pinhead was not meant to be the lead Cenobite. It was Butterball. Butterball mm -hmm. and Chatterer are very important in the Hellbound Heart. They talk a lot, even the female Cenobite. But because of the makeup, you, they couldn't talk. They couldn't see. The female Cenobite couldn't move her head. So everything went to Pinhead. And Doug, there's Doug Bradley, who was offered the choice of mattress mover or lead Cenobite, which what a casting. <laughs> Right. And, and he just falls right into this role and it just everything works out. I mean, the, I can't think of a movie that we've done where so many things went. I don't know if I would say wrong. Wizard of Oz or Jaws, maybe. But even in Hellbound Heart, we're getting a new Hellraiser here in 2022 here. A couple weeks. Yeah. And there's. Some unnecessary controversy, I guess, because Pinhead is actually <laughs> described as androgynous. Like, you can't yeah, tell if he... In the book, he's not... Uh, Pinhead's neither male nor female. Right, and he speaks with a female voice. Uh-huh. So... I'm, got I'm really interested to, to see this new one, because, I mean, they've leaked... There, there's a, a picture, like, from the, the neck up yeah. of Pinhead, and it looks really cool, and I can't wait to see what the rest looks like and how the voice is going to be. And it'll, it'll be very interesting. For those at home who haven't seen the picture yet, it's Marilyn Manson from the dope show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy they put the little jewels at the end of the pens. Mm. Cause that was, that was a little thing. So they're little red jewels. I'm intrigued, oh, nice. but they've tricked me at least eight times <laughs> in this series. I'm down to be tricked again. Right. Yeah. Christy was actually just supposed to be a close friend, but they made making it kind of an incestuous, kind of making it more creepy and uncomfortable for you as well. Cause yeah. Yeah. This movie just wants you to be more comfortable as well. Or sorry, right? more uncomfortable. <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting. Cause, and I think this is another thing that sets this movie apart is with things like Friday the 13th and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. The sex in those movies is more exploitative. It's there to get boobs into the movie, things like that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's like a morality thing. In this movie, sex is part of the horror of everything. Yeah, that is well put. Yeah, it, it's part of the horror. It's not meant there to tantalize or anything compared to, you know, the, the other big horror franchises at the time. It's there to be just as gross as the gore is or appealing as the gore is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes you feel extra vulnerable, too. Like, mm -hmm. if, if you think about it, you're just very vulnerable. So to be ripped apart like that, 
in a moment of intimacy like that. Yeah, it's uh, you're right. It, that's why that's that juxtaposition of pleasure and and horror, and they they, yeah, it's exactly what this movie's playing with. So and it's not for everybody. I know, like Mm-mm. Ebert. Ebert absolutely hated this movie. This movie. <laughs> he hated this movie. <laughs> he he half starred it. I guess Stephen King said, "I've seen the future of horror, and it's Clive Barker." Mm-hmm. And and Ebert, it cringes at this and saying, "Wish Stephen King had used a pen name when he said that because uh, he's like he's like I like Richard good horror Bachman movies." Richard Bachman said that. <laughs> Ebert said, "I like good horror movies. I enjoy being surprised, but there are no surprises in Hellraiser. Only dreary series of." of scenes that uh, repeat each other. What fun is it to watch the movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This movie is without wit, style, reason, and the true horror is the actors are made to portray and the technicians to realize this bankruptcy of imagination. Maybe Stephen King was thinking of a different Clive Barker. And pretty, pretty condemning words when you say bankruptcy of the imagination. Oh my God. He has a wonderful way with words. But even Claire Higgins didn't like the movie. She doesn't like horror movies. She walked Mm-mm. out of the screening after 10 minutes. She refused to return, which kind of upends all the plans. <laughs> I obviously wasn't old enough to be aware of how this would have been received in 87. My guess is these visceral reactions are perhaps just too shocking for people to deal with the content. And maybe as time's gone on, films broadened our horizons or desensitized us to some degree i see why stephen king likes this it's it's stephen king like in the moment of like they introduce you to characters they move Mm -hmm. into a house they make you feel uncomfortable and they they do that slow burn at the beginning but then it cuts and when it's once it's on it's on and it's different like it turns into more of a like i'm luring you to your death kind of thing and then then you're dealing with character construction it's not about the cenobites Mm -hmm. the monsters of the cenobites don't come into the hospital with kirsty until three quarters of the way through the movie yeah and well the first real shot of gore is is after the the whole frank prequel segment that we get where we just see chunks of flesh everywhere (laughs) and they're putting a face together you really have no idea what's going on that there's just chunks of this guy everywhere and someone is piecing his face back together that looms over the rest of the film because you've seen what can happen when these guys show up. And through the whole thing, it, it just keeps everything so heavy. Yeah. Frank coming back is a pretty, like when he reanimates, that's mm-hmm. a pretty big Yes. There's like these milestones that go along the way. I don't think it's always so obvious as what Ebert's saying. There's a period of time when once like victim number one gets brought in to kill, mm-hmm. perhaps you can assume there's going to be maybe another few more. And there are two more. But I yeah. mean, it is, it's not got such a high body count. I find myself just at the, sitting here going like, how did you guys not appreciate some of the better parts of this movie? One thing that I would say is maybe the acting is not necessarily where I want it to be. That can kind of be an across the board cut. And that's no knock on oh, Doug Bradley's amazing performance on his work. But we have Andrew Robinson as Larry, Claire Higgins as Julia, and Ashley Lawrence as... Kirsty and maybe a little bit of Sean Chapman as Frank. Like these are your people. These carry most of the lines, most of the dialogue through the movie. As actors, Lindsay, how does this go down for? You? I think Ashley Lawrence does a perfectly acceptable job, especially for it being her first feature film. With Frank, it's hard to judge that performance because they dubbed his voice. Yeah. You know, they dubbed all the English actors' voices except for Julia. I would be interested. To, to hear the like their actual voices 
uh, because producers thought that people couldn't relate to the characters because they were English, so they dubbed everybody's voice. Larry, the dad, he's okay. He's, I think he's, and I don't think it's his performance. I think it's just the character. He's kind of a sap, I would say. Oh, yeah. His wife is clearly done with him, and mm -hmm. he, he's not really realizing what's going no. on. No, no, he's not. I find that the portrayal of Larry is a little bit uneven. There's moments where he seems like just like this, maybe a little bit of a doting father, but then there's mm -hmm. other moments where he's kind of like rough and like just kind of gruff. And there's moments where like, oh, this guy's just really vanilla. Like, I think that was the point of what they were going for yeah. and why Frank would hold some appeal. But then there's other times where like there's some degree of dysfunction and his performance with what to do with this character seems all over the place yeah. as you watch this movie a second time. Yeah, I would agree with that, that it's hard to, to get a beat on exactly what he was going for. I think when he becomes Frank, he does a much better job. Yes, there you see a, a consistency. That's probably the best part of his performance is when Frank takes over him. I'm with you, though. I want them to undub this so bad. Yeah, mm -hmm. me too. So they said American audiences wouldn't relate to a British person. Yeah. Unless the accents are like, G'day, governor, I'm going to tell you pork. Or they didn't want to have it set in England. Right, they said it was more marketable in America. I don't believe that. Like, no. The locations are obviously London. Yeah, obviously, very obviously. <laughs> yeah. It's just confusing altogether, yeah, this... Weird studio interference. And they even have lines in the movie that refer to them being in England because Larry tells Julia, he's trying to convince her to be like, oh no, we're moving back here. It's going to be great. You're back on your home turf. Right. Which is England. You're <laughs> <laughs> <Here> in Portland. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's rough with how they did that. And that steals perhaps more of the acting away. Mm -hmm. 87's awfully late to be doing this dubbing stuff. I, yeah. I'm, I'm apologetic for it in the 50s and 60s. Chad's seen me go to bat for it a little bit. I also find that it's not done as well here as it can be in other times. No. It seems more cardboard and it sucks the life out of the characters. And you're right, Julio suffers less from it yeah. as well. And you did mention, though, that it's funny that she didn't like it. She won't watch more than 10 minutes of it because it freaks her out so much. And yet, <laughs> she cashed that check and came back for number two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we get Ashley Lawrence back with Mayhem from Allstate, Dean Winter himself. So they, <laughs> they come back. That's a fun one. But yeah. I saw Clive Barker say he insisted on getting real actors instead of just attractive people for his movie. That's mm -hmm. that's a direct shot on the Friday the 13th franchise. But I'm not sure I would make that statement because I don't feel like it shown through. And part of that is... No, I don't. It's absolutely due to the dubbing for some mm -hmm. of it. But others, it's like, yeah, I, I get it. Your $1 million budget is, is shining through. You were able mm -hmm. to... You weren't able to get the top of the top. Like Jennifer Tilly auditioned for Kirsty. That would yeah. have been fun. Or Lance Henriksen, who actually does show up and he's in Hell World, which is <laughs> terrible. But he was uh, offered the role of Frank. These are better actors. He thought about it, but he turned it down because they uh, didn't want to do a, a full series of sequels and stuff like that that weren't so good. So perhaps a justified concern. <laughs> yes, but then he does Hell World. Hellraiser, Hellworld. So again, bad decision there. Well, this was like Aliens time for him, so he yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was doing much better back then. 
I wish we had had Lance Henriksen in this. I think that would have been good. And honestly, I want to say Sean Chapman probably comes out of this the better of the four that we've just talked about. And also Lance Henriksen would physically and the way his style of acting would fit that role pretty, pretty freaking well. Oh, yeah. So like Sean Chapman has to be handsome enough to like really make Julia like pine over him with Mm -hmm. him. So he does that. But he also has to seem creepy and menacing. Yeah. He actually does check all the boxes. So of -hmm. these actors, I think he probably fits the mold the best. But I think where you're talking about, Chad, where Clive uh, wanted actors in the parts were for the Cenobites. They wanted stunt doubles for these guys. And they did get actors. For the Chatterer, for Butterball, for the female, and for Penhead. Perhaps the studios thought that was excessive, but I mean, this is where getting actors, I think, paid off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Even if it's just in movements, there there's a difference that you get. Because, like we've mentioned, Chatterer can't talk because the, the costume. Butterball can't talk. The female Cenobite can't move. There's a lot of issues with this. Doug Bradley said he was constantly having to tamp down Penhead's skirts, which is just a hilarious image, (laughs) to be able to move. And getting someone inexperienced in here to try and get all that, like Chatterer, for what it it does, especially the first scene with Kirsty where runs up and sticks his fingers in Kirsty's mouth and it's just mm-hmm. this intimidating almost feral dog like cenobite i that takes a special person to be able to evoke those emotions without speaking and he didn't have eyes either no <laughs> like doug jones does in like uh, pan's labyrinth which we covered earlier like the pale man oh mm-hmm. my goodness uh, yes you know like that creature seems like he's cenobite worthy i i feel like he and butterball have- <laughs> It's interesting to see what Doug Bradley said that Clive Barker said to him of like a line from Clive's plays swam to his mind when he was saying, I'm mourning for my humanity. And at that point, there's no backstory for these characters, but Mm -hmm. uh, they did agree that they had once been human. And but it wasn't necessarily yesterday, last week, 100 years ago. They didn't know. None of that really meant that that was there. There was a distance in that. And it was sufficient to have that idea in my brain, Doug said. It was a perpetual unconscious grieving for a man that was inside. That was what he carried through with him, that frozen grief that existed in limbo. And man, did Doug ever channel all that in just the right way. Right. If you're a fan of Hellbound Heart, you're probably upset with Doug Bradley. Like, this is just, <laughs> it's the complete opposite. It's be androgynous, be feminine, be, have a feminine voice. And then Doug Bradley just has that booming mm-hmm. baritone. But yeah, he... He does such a marvelous job on here, and he just his performance overall. I can't believe it was between Furniture Mover or Mattress Mover and this. In fairness, those Mattress Movers were bad. Yeah, yeah, those those guys went on to do nothing. But yeah, he wanted his (laughs) face to be seen in his first role, so I guess I get that. It's interesting, Hellbound Heart, this was the name of the novella that Clive Barker had written, but... They couldn't get that made either. So again, a hard part of getting us made. The studios didn't find that that was a jazzy enough name. I don't mind the term Hellraiser, but Hellbound Heart is actually intriguing and mysterious and fits what this is really well. I thought it was humorous that he came back and how about sadomasochists from beyond the grave? Right. <laughs> and they, they didn't like that either, apparently. So. Yeah. And there was a third suggestion. <laughs> the, the cast titled it uh more from julia's point of view what a woman will do for a good we'll go with shag oh yeah yeah shag (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. That is a very good title because that is kind of that that should be the tagline of this. It's it you know what would you do for a Klondike bar definitely mm-hmm. escalates here and it, she goes full out Sweeney Todd here. Yes. Oh yeah, cause that's the bulk of the story is the relationship between Frank and Julia and what she will do for him. I like Bob's Burgers, the TV show. I thought Tina mm-hmm. would like the scenes because she has a zombie fetish, like she likes zombies <laughs> a lot, and so I found myself going like. Uh, who could be drawn into this? Like this is this is a terrifying image. I was like Tina Belcher. That's who. <laughs> Fair enough. Talk about Clive Barker's character construction here. You said that he was finding himself in writing this. I mean, he was a hustler in the '70s who had no money, and kind of drew on this from literal S and M club scenes and having seen some stuff. So it's interesting that his own life experiences as scary as that sounds lead to this yeah yeah he drew influences like you said from s&m clubs and the catholic church and catholicism so that's where we get some of these religious themes it's almost he calls pinhead the priest so it's kind of a priesthood or a cult he was determined to get this movie made so i think that's why some of the decisions that wind up here get made and why some of the changes get made. But what I find fascinating is he says, I didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens. You could have given me a plate of spaghetti and told me it was necessary for filming Mm -hmm. and I would have believed you. My favorite story of this is he went to the library to check out books on directing and there were two, (laughs) but both of those books were checked out and he just, he says, well, I'm effed. (laughs) (laughs) there but you know for for a filmmaking debut i see some criticisms of like hey this seems like a high schooler there are weird cuts there are weird edits Mm -hmm. in conversation where it just strangely dries up and then moves on to something else i think he did do a really good job since everything was shot except for uh, some of the attic stuff everything was shot on location in that house and i I think for a first-time director, he did a pretty good job of navigating those closed spaces because they do a lot of up-and-down shots instead of, you know, sweeping side-to-side things. And it makes for some interesting perspectives. Yeah, he's got some technique here, like Frank's blood dripping. That's actually a reverse camera shot. And Mm -hmm. they do have some good camera techniques i think where he struggled most in the director's chair was certainly when to cut or how to how to coach and a lot of this they ran out of money he talks about his special effects in the end he refers to the guy as some greek guy there was a greek (laughs) guy that finishes up the movie and it's why it looks different than the end Uh, he, he finished it up in a weekend and he's like judging by the amount of alcohol and time i'm pretty happy with the final product yeah, those those end special effects, the little lightning effects when when each Cenobite gets yes. sucked back into the box or whatever. Those used to bother me, but they don't anymore. I just love how how quaint and kitschy they are. <laughs> <laughs> that same sound effect every time. That... Yes. <laughs> Going back to the religious uh illusions in this if you you mentioned that chad like there are there's moments like there's a figure of jesus on the stairs as they come up and and kind of in shadow with the light coming in behind him and like julia's kind of walking up the stairs and you see that jesus falls out of the closet you mentioned that this was frank's home before i don't frank doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would have this stuff lying around so these are clearly film 
making decisions necessarily. Did you make any kind of connections or themes that they were doing with that in terms of what happened in the action? You've seen this far more than I have. I, I was having a hard time pulling the threads through with what they were trying to do with that. I'm thinking, I mean, it's a possibility that it's because that was their mother's house. Um, mother's house okay. yeah so that they were trying to show that maybe they were brought up in a super religious kind of environment to add more to the themes of religion and stuff like that i think that was just another layer he was trying to, in there that these two men grew up in this house and their mother was extremely religious see now i want to take larry and make him steer more into that way and frank be the more rebellious type so mr straight arrow and yeah. Larry's character is one of those ones where I'm just like, you, you said what Clive didn't do? I don't think he told his actors well enough, no, don't do that, do this. Nope. Mm. That's, probably the, that's probably the number one thing. And in fairness, when you're a first-time director, and this is his first time out, I've heard this with other people we've covered on the show, just like, I didn't know I could tell people what to do. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a good point. I, I think I like that change of making Larry a man of faith, Attending church, whatever, you could have him be mm -hmm. a deacon, whatever, in his church. But it's clearly instilled in, in Frank's life to some extent, because what's his last line? Jesus wept. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that was actually changed. It was initially F-U, <laughs> and it was changed probably for censorship reasons and to keep the rating down, but it was changed to Jesus wept. I don't know how much rating down they achieved. They, this had a hard time. They, they, the MPPA gave this X rating for mm -hmm. sure. Right. And they had to go back and retool Yes. Yeah. It's funny. When you read the descriptions, I don't want to get too lewd, but I mean, it's like the number of thrusts you use right? will be counted. I mean, like the, the rules on this stuff is... You can only have three means an R rating, five means an X rating. It's just crazy. Yeah. C-17. <laughs> One of the Johns insisted on being naked. There's an old Saturday Night Live sketch where a bunch of judges come out and do a official spot check to make sure Chevy Chase and Jane Curtin are making love properly, and it feels like that. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's like mm -hmm, yep, mm -hmm, two thrusts. That's right. No more, no less. No right. more, no less. <laughs> Well, there was one, though, where Julia, like, the first victim had his head bashed in with a hammer, and they showed more, more bam, 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 with the hammer and a close-up of the hammer in the head. They did cut down the violence, too. And I think there was also a shot more of Frank at the end with his head getting ripped apart. Yeah. I think they lingered on that a little little longer. And Russell, uh, Lindsay, have you, have you seen The Loved Ones? Because Russell talking about... Not liking gore. That was my dealer's choice last year. It did not go well for him. No. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't have all this other good character stuff for me in there. So, Aww. I mean, I felt Julia's, char Julia's character is, way, is a way better villain. So mm -hmm. You like the Black Widow. <laughs> well, I mean, Julia, Julia is like there's something human in her. She is. Oh, no. She's a monster, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying she gives in to her lust. Like she's consumed mm -hmm. by, like you said, what will she do for a good shagging? And yeah. like, I mean, consumed by it. And I mean, it's obsession. It's an interesting to unpack this character and to see what's motivating her. Mm -hmm. I want to like Larry a little more than I do. For some of these <laughs> moments, like where he's just like, I'll get the beer myself. I'm like, nah, nah, don't do that with Larry. Like, you got to just play it, like make him nerdy so that you feel sorry for him when he gets. Yeah, like, oh, I, I guess I'll get the beer then, honey. You know, just, just yeah. very. Exactly. A little more happy-go-lucky, I guess. Sleepless in Seattle that we did together where the sole reason for dumping the guy was he had asthma. <laughs> like you, you're asking for that character 
No, I'm not going all the way to ask my guy from Sleepless in Seattle, but I am. <laughs> or it was allergies. He had allergies. I'm like, come on, mm. man. I have allergies. In the same way that Kirsty's likable and I feel invested in her, I want to like Larry a little more than I do. So I'm more concerned that Kirsty lost her dad because I like Kirsty. I'm just like, oh, no, that's your dad. I want to actually be sorry for Larry. Exactly. I didn't feel bad for Larry in that situation. I felt bad for Kirsty. Right. Because <laughs> well, I just, there's not that's that That's not connection. what you want. No, it's not what you want at all. And then they compound the horror by having her dad hit on her. Like, come yeah. on to her. And that's just, yeah. Well, it's Frank wearing his skin. Mm -hmm. So I, I would have thought it also would have been funny. Frank should have been very specific by like, okay, I need one more body, but this one really counts. So like, mm -hmm. this is who I'm going to look like. <laughs> And then it's like, ah, my brother. That's kind of creepy, right? man. <laughs> of course, with Frank, he's just into it, probably. What's probably? Yeah. What's Brad Pitt doing right now? <laughs> exactly. If I got to choose, that's all yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> Someone call Chris Hemsworth. Although that that part always confused me. I mean, even from the first time I watched it, I'm like, okay, he's sucking these other people dry of their their blood or whatever he, he said that he's like the blood brought me back and it was regrowing his organs and his bones and his tissues it wouldn't regrow his skin right he had to get someone else's skin i figured because the way that they were like the rules of what they were portraying is that if he got enough bodies he'd be normal again oh you're right like it's kind of like a frankenstein approach like where it's just like he didn't go in and like say like man i'm gonna take your liver yeah I, I was just, that, that part has always bothered me a little bit. Like, why is he taking his skin? I agree. Yeah. Yeah, you should be back to normal, Frank. But I guess they, with the dubbing problems, they're just like, sure, Andrew. And I think he just wanted to add that element of how creepy it would be for your uncle wearing your father as skin to hit on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While being dumb. Yes. <laughs> So we, we, we kind of got off on a little bit of tangent of some things that weren't working, but I do think Barker preserves his story remarkably well as a director, and his strength in this is storytelling. I think he's uneven with his special effects, and maybe he's not as assertive with what he wants from his actors, but I gotta say, his storytelling is what I do like about it, and that's why I am sitting here going like, I was I came out of this the first time going like, with like wow, that was a cool movie. Mm -hmm. And I ran quickly to Hellraiser 2 just to see where this thing goes, and the labyrinth that they depict in the second one, I don't want to go too far into that one, but there's there's something worth watching in the second one. It's not nearly as good as this one, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of lore in Hellraiser, and that's probably the most interesting part. It's just this world that he's created, and there's so much to explore with the Lament configuration and Lamont's box and all all of this that he's built so it's a wonderful world to explore it's kind of what i said in the beginning of it has so much potential to be tapped into do they actually say where they want to be in america at any point i don't think so i don't think so no they'd never like established a location with as ghetto as the producers were about not being in england i feel like they should have been like uh it's good to be back on my own home turf here in the United States. <laughs> back in the Queen's colonies. <laughs> I'm going to go to the grocery store and pick up some fireworks. <laughs> I do. I kind of like that aspect of it where if you take out that line about being back on your home turf, because I, I think this whole movie 
has such a dreamlike quality to the look of it. Especially some of the shots in the house because he uses a lot of natural light. And so things have this, this dreamlike look to them. I kind of like the aspect of not knowing like an exact location. Like this could be happening anywhere. Mm, yeah, it's it follows approach of where they deliberately put weird things in to throw you off on time and place. Even though it's, I feel like that's clearly Detroit. It's, it's Detroit. <laughs> there are too many movies now where I'm not going to Detroit. <laughs> At the beginning, I was intrigued and I wanted to get more of the Asian context that this cube was put in. Like you're yeah. talking about world building. Like who's this dude that gives this cube to everybody? I mean, who's What's the- What's your pleasure, uh, who's sir? The, right. Yeah, the, he's the worst game salesman ever. In <laughs> fact, I want to know what other terrible games he sells to unsuspecting victims. That would be an interesting movie. I imagine him and the salesman from Gremlins are working together. <laughs> like they've just got this weird market of- crazy stuff and you can mm -hmm. buy a box of pleasure or you can buy something that you can't get wet <laughs> they're definitely channeling their exorcist love pretty heavy in that opening scene oh yeah like there's chanting in like the background it's asia instead of the middle east but it's they're doing all the same tricks there's chanting it's hot everybody's sweating mm -hmm. there's this mysterious artifact that we have here there's fly sounds like wings <laughs> going around i mean clive barker is definitely drinking the the William Friedkin Kool-Aid here from Exorcist <laughs> pretty hard in the opening scene. And to which I say, you could steal from nobody better than that. So, And I forget about it every single time. Same with The Exorcist. Same here with Hellraiser. I'm like, oh yeah, we, we start somewhere else. I'm not with you. I feel like this is a uh, intriguing world that the cube lives in. Where does the cube come from? This would be a better thing to spend the third movie on than what they did. I mean, he, he has a demon retriever, which is pretty darn handy. Like... The... <laughs> thing just flies out to america and then back over to the middle east for the market functions a lot like the harry potter owls just not nearly as cute all right so demonic hedwig and he eats bugs yeah that dude is scary by the way. he is very creepy <laughs> yeah when a movie with cinnabites in it i was still thoroughly creeped out by the hobo in, in the pet store mm -hmm. not breaking eye contact with kirsty while being super grody and like eating bugs yeah just hand <laughs> fistfuls of crickets i've been hard on some of the acting this guy was perfect right. <laughs> bug eating hobo yes <laughs> I also like some of the, the other nightmare imagery that he puts in, like when the Cenobites first visit her at the hospital. We get the weird time lapse of the flowers opening and the, the TV is shorting out and the IV bag is filling with blood and exploding. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that surreal scene was yeah. like such a nightmare. That was so good. In fact, Ebert said this movie has no style. I will challenge that. This, this hospital scene, mm -hmm. despite bad acting by the... Doctors. That is a horrible <laughs> portrayal, by the way. I mean, that guy was rough. And uh, I, I give him credit for being progressive and putting a black doctor in it, and, but not that. Yeah, that guy was rough. But anyway, like everything that happens in there is so cool. The tiles turn mm -hmm. black. Like, they, like the color inverts and smoke starts coming through them. And like you said, the IV blood bag where it just explodes because yeah. it's like reverse going up into her IV. Man. I was pretty uncomfortable through many parts of this movie, but I think I was peak level of uncomfortable watching all this supernatural TV turning on when mm -hmm. it shouldn't. And yeah. The sound that that TV made. Yeah. Oof. I mean, Poltergeist and The Ring have both trained us to be afraid of TVs when they randomly turn on, but 
It, it is a weird criticism. It lacks style. I agree with a lot of his points, but their style was clearly condoms and lube. Yes. <laughs> they used a ton of it. They wanted things to look wet and to sound wet, and so they were, they were just using all of these... All this lube, all these condoms all over the place. So it said they made a run to the shop to load up on what looked like a king's ransom of orgy supplies. And <laughs> birthing sequences. It's just, they're making this very, tactile is the wrong word, but sensory film. So there's, there's certainly mm -hmm. style that's pumping through this movie the entire time. I mean, the red flower, time lapsing to like decaying and stuff like that, like the life's being sucked out of the room. It's good. I mean, and honestly, the fantasy part of this kicks in, too. Like, I would just call this movie part fantasy movie, not mm -hmm. like it's a fantasy we want to experience. But no, like, there's another there's another world that she starts to go into. Yeah. The split in the wall. Like, yeah. This she, is, op she opens a doorway. Yeah. Yeah. This is like Oz or Narnia, only it's way, way not Oz or Narnia <laughs> when you go into it. It's bad news. We, did, we covered a never-ending story before. I'll take the Swamp of Sadness over the Cenobites oh, yeah, Labyrinth. Definitely. Oh, no. No, don't remind me of the Swamp of Sadness. No. What about Legend? Should I remind you of that one, Chad? That's a terrible movie. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> I like that movie. Surrounded by the worst. Uh, just... <laughs> Yeah, that that would be my Cenobite hell, by the way, is uh, watching Buckaroo Banzai and Legend just <laughs> nonstop. Like, back to back to back. Yes, yes. I will say another thing that sets this horror movie apart from the other franchises, at least in this first film, there's really no humor. That's true, yeah. There's no camp there's, and there's no humor. Where the other ones, you know, Freddy is, is a pretty humorous, darkly humorous character. Chucky's trying to be funny. Oh, yeah. I, I think you find elements of that in, in all the other big horror franchises. But in this first Hellraiser movie, I can't speak for the entire franchise, but there, there's no humor. I mean, there's none. There's some of the characters like attempting humor within the scene, but it's not humor for us. Right. No, that's a great point. The furniture movers are amusingly bad at their acting jobs. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean... I think I think you've nailed something. I like Lindsay. Comedy is like my favorite genre. But you're right. I think I don't like my horror to be particularly funny. Yeah. Now that you think about it, I, I'm pretty serious about my horror, and I you might have stumbled on one of the things I like about that. It, everything's handled with great seriousness in this movie. Yeah, it's very very serious. Even though you know there's leather clad demons coming out of the walls, it's very very serious. Yeah, with exposed nipples, you don't really feel mm. like laughing at Pinhead once. No. It's like he's got that belly window and the windows for his nipples. What a strange costume. We talked about Legend a second ago, actually. This movie is right there with Legend for the best wardrobe and makeup of any movie we've covered at this point, I think. For a cheap movie, it, they do not look cheap. No, not at all. The makeup, the character design on these, it's just amazing. Right? Six hours for Doug Bradley to become Pinhead. And I, I think it's really fun as the series goes on. He had it done so much that he learned to do it himself. He would do his own makeup. And in later movies, he's actually credited as one of the special effects and makeup artists. So he gets so used to it. So after securing funding for the motion picture adaptation, Clive Barker took his producer, Christopher Fig, and they assembled a team 
this is the dream team here. They got Bob Keen and Jeffrey Portas. They were on their first run here at Image Animation. And then they also nailed it again with Jane Wild Goose as the costume designer. These three come up with the look of the Cenobites. I think two of us even said just the sheer cover of this captivated you before you ever mm -hmm. even saw it. Haunted you for years, decades. Yeah. And before you ever saw it. That's pretty amazing. I want to really t take a moment just to say like, Penhead looks like he has little flesh grids cut out of every little piece of his face. Very precise array of nails in him. It's it's staggeringly scary. And to think that they sat there not only drawing that, but like molding it into his face over six hours, just the dedication and the attention to detail. And it, and it follows through with what they're wearing too. Oh yeah, and it's so different than anything that had ever been seen before. Cause I mean, they took aspects from so many different cultures, like tribal piercings and scarification. They took so much uh, inspiration from, from different cultures in constructing the looks and they all just had such attention to de detail that everything just came out looking like they spent a lot more money than they did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bob Keen was pretty young at this point. He's only in his mid-20s, mm -hmm. but he had amassed an impressive list of credits. Uh, so he'd worked on the Star Wars trilogy. He worked with Jim Henson on multiple films. He had done a handful of projects with Mick, Nick Millay. Millay got sick and Keen was tasked with designing all the makeup and special effects for Highlander. What an amazing run in your young career to lead you to this point. So of course, he's probably one of the most competent people on this whole film production. And Barker even said like, he looks back at filming this fondly. Everybody on the set was remarkably delicate and kind to him. They were very forgiving. There was a fondness for him that they had of this. And the movie that didn't necessarily get their first cut of everybody, man, just by virtue of his age maybe, but Bob Keen, just amazing work in his 20s. It blew my mind. Yeah, I, can you imagine the direction? It's like we want to make this pseudo S&M costumes with a hole in the throat based off of this African ritual or we want someone with just a giant set of teeth and no eyes or a, a fat guy with sunglasses. Make that cool. Make that intimidating. <laughs> He's like, all right, off we go. The costume designer was... Jane Wildgoose was asked to just make four to five super butchers. This is what she does with them. They were only given a couple of criteria. They said they have to have areas of revealed flesh where torture was included. Something associated with butchery, again, like cutting up and carving people. Mm -hmm. And it had to have repulsive glamour. I love that descriptor, repulsive glamour. It fits, the, <laughs> it fits the, them very, very well. That's like the perfect way to describe it. And he, he said one or two of them should have hangers on them, like to be like hanging. That's all that she was given. And then she gave this gold. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked as much about them, but Chatterer is every bit as scary as Pinhead to me. Pinhead's got the great actor and he gets the lines, but Chatterer is really scary. Too. Yeah, Chatterer is my favorite Cenobite too. <laughs> yeah, they bring back, I don't know what happens to Chatterer 2, but Chatterer 3 is brought back in the series. I there's probably some lore reason why Shatterer 2, I, I don't know. But that's how popular it was. You don't get returning Cenobites, but you get Shatterer again. It's very different from the other ones. I mean, it's more closer to Butterball with, you know, how grotesque that, you know, the, the facial features are all distorted. That it has no eyes and just these chattering teeth and says nothing. It's such 
such an odd design, I think. And and the physicality that the actor brought to it really set it apart. Absolutely. And the guy at Butterball was just somebody in Clive Barker's theater group. He's like, hey, you want to come do this? <laughs> how many how many hours of makeup for him? I know even the female. The female Cinnabite took three hours to do all that makeup. They're all an absolute labor. Uh, just mm-hmm. And they're all truly terrifying in their own way. I think it's cool that they don't, like you said, they each take different styles mm-hmm. too. Like this overbloated guy whose stomach is hanging out so he can like touch his guts and stuff like that. Like there's so much thought put into this character of somebody who like is the total glutton at the same time chatterer has this pulled face that seems warped in a whole nother way that that's not like the other two mm-hmm. and then the female is like one big move by cutting her neck open it's really interesting how varied they are and how they're all equally terrifying together what a, yeah the female cenobite even though she can't really move at all, she does some really cool things. Like, there's the one shot where she's, like, sticking her finger into her throat wound. Yeah. It's so disturbing. <laughs> it is. And I've got to say, in a movie with many terrifying things, one of the most terrifying things is Julia's attire and her hair. <laughs> the Bride of Frankenstein hair that looks like it is out of a form mold. It is super stiff. It looks like you could hit it with a baseball. would, like, be hit out of another lawn, then just, like, it would stick. Like, just right in there. And she wouldn't notice it. It's that stiff. The gigantic star earrings that she has from the 80s are so 80s-tacular. And the jumbo glasses and the shoulder pads that look like they're from a football linebacker. And and yes, she goes to the bar and picks up and beds three men very quickly, nevertheless. So she talks a good game because that is quite a get-up. Yeah, it's, it's just showing the that change in her character from when she first met Frank. Everything about her is very severe. From the cut of her clothes, to her hair, to her makeup, to her lipstick. It's just very, very severe and pointy. Yeah. (laughs) It's very pointy. (laughs) And we talked about how some of the special effects weren't good, but some of them were good. Lindsay, what are some of the special effects that you did like? The rebirth of Frank oh, yes. is the I think the best special effect in the film just cuz they they really took their time with it piece by piece cuz before they didn't shoot that sequence the first rough cut of the film they showed you know the studio and they're like here here's a little more money and they took that money and went and shot that sequence and I'm glad they did because it's such a a, a very very strong sequence like the stop motion stuff and the the like the reverse shots they did to get some of the things that were going on like his heart reforming and stuff like that just just really really crazy stuff that final image of it of just this half animated corpse with just skeletal bits on it screaming in front of these backlit windows it's very powerful Yeah, it's just unfortunate that that's so early on because that sets the Mm -hmm. bar way, way too high for the rest of the movie. (laughs) It's like, ah, this is awesome. And then the Greek guy lets us down in the end with his weekend. Oh, that is disappointing. But Julia's murdering is is another like mini crescendo. Oh, and then there's the, oh my gosh, Frank's consumed this guy's body while not as terrifying visually. That's a that's a shocking mm-hmm. moment. And then, like I mentioned, when the walls split apart in the hospital and she's just like defenseless in this locked room, like windowless room and like and nothing but a hospital. All the bloody gore is is really, really good. Like when Julia murders people and then when Frank is wearing Larry's skin, when she rips at his face and you just get these like bloody chunks hanging down. 
all of all of the like the the skin tearing and ripping is really really grody. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Frank erupting at the end from the hooks pulling him apart. Stylized, but it was stylized in a good way. Mm -hmm. All of these scenes shot in this room are done with darkness, so you don't just see the the puppets or the makeup. Mm -mm. It, it's obscured enough. And Frank, the actor playing Frank in that suit, moves very quickly, which is part yeah. of what's so shocking. And that low camera angle of him, like crawling out of the shadows at the door when, like, when she closes the door behind her, mm -hmm. Whew, that got me. <laughs> Definitely makes you want to say, "Don't just close the door. Run out of the house, yeah, lady." Right. It's very, it's very unsettling. You mentioned the reverse photography. That is amazing. So they constructed models of body parts of waxes of different melting points and different colors, and they they heated up this model and they filmed it in reverse so that all of the waxes melted off and did go into a pool. And they just took the film and reversed that. They took the same effect with like the blood from from Larry's mm -hmm. hitting the floor being consumed into the floor. They had like little nail holes that they could like seep the blood up, and it was just so cool to see how this is the eighties. They don't have computers. They did all of this without computers, and it all looks really good. All in camera effects, right? except for the end. Actually, that's so. I'm excited to have this remade because I believe the acting can be better, and I believe. Some of the special effects at the end where it's just like, ah, you ran out of money at the end. That's so frustrating. <laughs> and I think you can set up better lure to the world that you were saying. For sure, all three of those things excite me. The thing that scares me about it, though, is the wardrobe and the makeup. It's not going to look this good again because I, no matter how good the CGI is, this was just so good. Oh, yeah. You use mm -hmm. puppets and practical effects. I will clarify, it's not necessarily being remade. Clive Barker himself has said hey, you can't remake this movie. It's just almost like a soft reboot of it. They're not attempting to touch this story itself. Mm. Oh, we're not getting... Oh, I'm disappointed. So we're not getting Frank and Julia and Larry again. No, no. Oh, my heart sank a little bit. Oh, I, I'm i with Clive Barker on this one. Like, Yeah, I want better things for it, but I don't want them to go back and try this again. I want them to build a time machine and just get more money and do it better. I don't want to see someone else try and screw it up. Well, he did get more money because they saw some of the early cuts of it and they realized that some good stuff was being done here. All that stuff that we were talking about, like being shot in reverse and mm -hmm. animatronics, most of the money was being dumped into that Frank rebirth scene. So oh, yeah. the producers did see it. They did get a million dollars is more money than it had being dumped into it that those shots are done on the soundstage so they had more control and to be able to do some of those amazing things so they spent it wisely i just wish they had also gone back and shown them the results of that so that they could have some money to finish the movie off because they like i said they made 14 point plus million dollars so i mean it's just give me give me another one million let me finish this thing off right it's insane that we're now talking about a two million dollar like a one million dollar difference in the movie and knowing what we know now, it's spawned 10 movies of varying quality. Right. Most of them were direct to video, but nevertheless, like, this is a huge franchise. Merchandising alone probably have set Clive Barker for life. Like, just $1 million. Come on. He doesn't really direct much after this. He did, what, Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions? That's it. With those the other two? Yeah. Yep. Yep, that's it. And he writes those also. He's really a writer 
And then later on, he just kind of starts producing. It's not like this was his calling, it looks like to me, but he sure had a good piece of work and I'm glad he breathed his own story to life. It makes me wish that he could... Would you want a George Lucas or Steven Spielberg like, I'm going to touch this again. I'm going to go back and fix some things, Lindsay. No, I don't think so. Because like I said, I, I find the the special effects at the end, I find them charming now, you know? And, and it... Just the look of it and the the some of the acting that's not so great it just adds to the appeal for me because i've seen it so many times when i watch this i don't see the flaws anymore it's just i love this movie and i love it flaws and all so i i wouldn't want anything changed i'm afraid when you say george lucas tampering but i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't mind if they went in and fixed up the hand-drawn end animation and fix it up so it doesn't make the same cheesy 80s uh, lightning sound whenever the mm-hmm. box is closed. You could hear that sound effect and instantly know the movie was made in the 80s. It's like, okay, can we can we get something unique? Maybe do a different sound each time. Clean up the lightning and the explosions. I I would be for that, yeah. I think you could do some some retouching like you said i don't need the lightning even like when the boxes in the beginning with the blue lightning that was a that was the first sign of little cheapness in the beginning i was like ooh, just get a little bit of dry ice and pop it in that little box and let it steam we don't need to go too high tech here with this 80s lightning was a fascination we saw it in highlander <laughs> and we saw it in some of these other things and it's just like it's it's almost like they came to the director like you know we can make lightning now what let's do it yeah <laughs> Did you see what they did in Return of the Jedi? That through the entire decade. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Back to the Future can get away with this and somehow Spielberg doesn't seem cheesy or whatever, but for the rest of the 80s, lightning is is a problematic effect where it's too cool. And it's in full effect at the end of this movie. That in slow motion. Slow motion plus lightning. Ooh. Oh yes. Oh yeah, we get some slow motion in um Kirsty's dream se- sequence. Got to have it. That always freaked me out as a kid because of the the kid crying in it. It's just such a weird uh, sound to put. It's such a disturbing sound to put over that imagery. That that scene always affected me as a kid. Right from the get go, the music also grabbed mm-hmm. me too. And I was surprised to see that in this case, Barker had his initial soundtrack stripped out. He had the industrial band Coil mm-hmm. do all the music from this. It was a group that he had heard whose records just made his bowels churn, which that's an endorsement for your music. I don't know what it is, but I mean, he then had that stripped away from him. They didn't want to pay for that. I got to say, they just took like a house band to do the music and that's not that bad. It's not, it's, it's a nice horror thriller type of score. It, it works very well, especially those chimes towards the end when the Cenobites are coming. It's almost like the, the, you know, a chime on a clock. It's, it's very, very effective. It's no tubular bills from The Exorcist, but it's still good. This is back-to-back movies, Russell, where I'm surprised at your tolerance of a synthesizer, because that's pretty heavily used. It's scary. Yeah. It's creepy, man. It sets the mood. Like, I didn't say I want to sit there and listen to it. It it sets the mood. It's the same guy that did A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Invaders from Mars. So it's a very gothic Mm. score. It's uh, Christopher Mm. Young. And if you've seen Nightmare on Elm Street 2, it's a very, very different 
type of Freddy flick. Oh, yeah. But it definitely fits kind of the same themes here of the S&M and exploring sexuality. So he has a niche. There is a nine-track compilation of this out there. Uh, the Unnatural History 2, Smiling in the Face of Perseverity, and on another album of the unreleased themes of Hellraiser. I don't know that I want to replace that in, in my quote-unquote George Lucas retouch. I'll keep my cheap music, I think. I just want the, the voices undubbed. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Lindsay, are you ready to hand out some awards? Sure. MVP of Hellraiser. It's Claire Higgins as Julia. She does such a great job, and I, I love how that character is written, and I love how she performs it. She's so cold and just unmoved. Like, she shows no emotion on her face. And the only time you get, like, a genuine smile from her is when she starts doing these killings for Frank. Oh, I know. She's, have, she's loving herself in those moments. I just, I think she's such an underrated horror character. She's kind of, like, cult horror character, and, and I, I just love it. She does have some reservations about killing Larry. She's like, no, let's not kill him. Like, I'm totally, I'm totally, like, leaving him for you, but I don't want to kill him. She gets over that pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> but she was reluctant. She did protest a, a little bit. So, I mean, there's some semblance of a, a human being in there. MVP, Chad. Doug Bradley is Pinhead. I think if you're going strictly from source material, you're probably annoyed by this performance, but he's just an icon at this point. The deep voice, the stature, he's just so in intimidating. And they replaced him in Hellraiser 9 with this, like, spirit Halloween alternative guy, Doug Bradley's. Wasn't it like a, like a big dude? Yeah. I don't think Doug wanted to do it anymore. He didn't want to do that script, which is a lot, saying he did Hellraiser Hellbound. But, <laughs> yeah, he refused. And so I'm a guy that just has naturally bigger cheeks. They kind of casted someone like that in the role so it's a guy that kind of looks like he's storing nuts for the winter as penhead it's a bad look like find someone with a more gaunt face like doug Bradley. yeah you need you need cheekbones oh and yeah nice nice jawline severe jawline yes well he does it for 18 more years after this so it's a great pick <laughs> tip my hand on this one and bob keen jeffrey portas and jane mm -hmm. wildgoose the trio of them give the look and feel of hellraiser that i believe is what drew us in and what keeps us coming back. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Best Supporting Actor. I put down Ashley Lawrence as Kirstie. I think she does a good job, especially for her first role. And <laughs> she's a very strong female character. She doesn't really rely on any of the men in the movie to save her. I especially love the end where she's fighting the engineer for the box. They're kind of like wrestling for it. And she finally gets it away, and then her stupid boyfriend, like, tries to, to grab the box, and she, like, slaps his hand <laughs> and pushes him away. He is a pretty doofy boyfriend. She's like, I have this, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I like her character. Yeah, I thought for sure he was going to bite the dust. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he just reeked of, like, you're not making it through this movie. Right. He, didn't, he, he didn't even need to show up at the end, you know? No, you're right. I think I might be less hard on him had he not shown up at the end mm -hmm. in a bad windbreaker. Being right? so clueless on everything. Like, what is happening? <laughs> it's like your adrenaline's running. You don't care. <laughs> Best supporting actor, Chad. I went with Oliver Smith. He plays the monster version of Frank. 
I thought he was threatening, but he's still very charming. He, Russell, you talked about the movements. That's tough to do in that suit. So I liked Oliver Smith. Yeah, great choice. And I went Doug Bradley here because I do think, despite him being on the cover of the movie, I think he is a supporting player mm-hmm. and he does an amazing job here. So Hidden Gem, Lindsay. I put the first of Julia's victims because that guy is just so like skeevy. <laughs> yeah, he is. You know, the way he takes his clothes off and then he's like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom now. And he he just very, very convincingly plays a kind of guy that would pick up a woman at lunchtime and go to her attic to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> There's a type. Right? <laughs> creepy attic, too. Yeah, Very uh... creepy. They had to reshoot that scene. The actor insisted on being naked, and they shot it naked, and then they made him put clothes on. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Hidden gem, Chad. We've talked about it before, but Nicholas Vance as the Chatterer. I love that Cenobite so, so very, very much. And there's a reason why they brought it back. So all of the Chatterer's performance. And I'm going to go with Frank Baker. He's the derelict. Or he's listed as the derelict, but he's the bug-eating creepy hobo. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Recast, Lindsay. I decided to go a little funny. Uh, I said you should recast Larry the guy who played Larry with Bob Saget. Oh. <laughs> Especially at that time. It might have been a few years later when Full House started up. Yeah. It's just that Danny Tanner kind of attitude. <laughs> well, I said I wanted to like him more. <laughs> right. You steered into it. You steered all the way into it. I like it. I went after Andrew Robinson as well. I recasted him with Alec Baldwin. Because when I think of the character, I think of Alec Baldwin's character from Beetlejuice. Kind of the same. Dorky. Oh yeah. Oh, I was gonna say at this point in time, he's too much of a hunk to do to to be. You could nerd him up a little. Is he? Is I he felt nerdy like he was this? a nerd in Beetlejuice, but he's he's good. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think it worked then either. I felt like it was just like <laughs> it's a okay. handsome man to put right. a pair so of glasses he's your Clark on. Kent. I'm not fooled. Like you're not fooling me, Superman. <laughs> you are no Rick Moranis, Alec Baldwin. Right. Stop taking nerds' roles. They belong to nerds. Um, so, um, <laughs> poor Larry. I also went after Larry. Um, yeah. I went a more serious route where I want, I wanted a oh. good actor in the role and I got Sam Shepard to do the part. And I think that he would have been a good for the part. And I don't ever do this, but I broke my own rule. I went ahead and recasted Julia too. What about Isabella Rosalini? For, mm, for I can't Julia? do that. I like Claire Higgins. Me too. I, yeah, I thought she did a great job. Oh, man. I, I felt like she would have taken Creepy up to another couple notches. I, I, just, what... lo- I just love Claire, nope, people aren't Claire biting Higgins' on that performance because she's just a stone cold. She has that look about her, and she pulls that off so well. Best shot. The Frank Rebirth backlit scream is my favorite shot in the whole movie. It's just so effective and creepy and gross-looking and... That, that guttural scream that comes out of him. It's- yeah, I'm going to make it two for two to add another adjective. I think I'm going to add insane. It is an insane <laughs> shot and an insane yes. scene. But yeah, I had creepy, incredibly effective. Lindsay nailed all of the description. <laughs> My three favorite shots are all from this scene. So, I mean, I'm with you guys. I'm just going to give a shout out to Frank, like, being on his hands and knees rapidly moving towards the door with that low perspective as a as a runner up it's all part of the same scene so best scene lindsay 
the arc of Julia becoming this serial killer. Because on top of this, like, fantastical, spiritual horror that we have going on, this movie's a serial killer movie with her activities. So just the first initial victim, and then by the time she's to the third one, she's just nonchalantly wiping the blood off the hammer. Yeah. You know? And so I just, I just love that that whole arc of her becoming the serial killer. Absolutely. And she is the real monster in this one. Like to, to <laughs> take a George Romero type line, the people were the real monsters all along. Yeah. Chad, how about you? Best scene. The hospital scene with the arrival of the Cenobites, the blue lightning, the TV switching off, Chatterer going straight after Christie's mouth with his fingers, the IV bag, everything that we've talked about, the synth score in the background it's just this wonderful culmination of just terror. You guys, so I often, knowing that I usually go last with this, I usually <laughs> nice. back up just in case, and you took them both. So um, <laughs> correct. those are the correct answers in both cases. I, I, I'm not prepared with the third one. So, uh, so. Uh, best wardrobe or makeup moment, of which there are so many good ones. Lindsay. There are so many good ones. I mean, we've touched on on both of. I have two of them. One is 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 lesser than the other, but we've touched on both of them. Julia's wardrobe, I love, and I already talked about why the severeness of it. And the other one is is again Frank's rebirth. They, that's where they put the, a lot of money and time into that whole effect, and it really really paid off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great choices, Chad. Best wardrobe. I wanted to create credit the company it's called rough russell fx that's bob keen and team but if i have to do something specific you know what the the little belly window in pinhead's costume for whatever reason that is just so off-putting and unsettling <laughs> i don't know why maybe it's just a slight bulge or whatever it is belly i think that's brilliant and i'm just gonna go for pinhead's head I'll be honest with you. It's mm-hmm. it captivated so many people, and it really drew me to the movie. It scared me before I ever saw the movie. That that's amazing to me. And then it delivered. It didn't seem any like ah, I can't believe I was afraid of that. It's like no, <laughs> he's scary. So I got to go with Penhead. He's the iconic character. That, I think he's the reason why we have ten of these. Yes. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, change one thing. The dubbing of the voices. Mm-hmm. I. I think that's that harms a few performances and anytime there's dubbing in a movie it just kind of lowers the quality it it just dings the movie a little bit when there's when there's bad dubbing um so that that would be the one thing that I would change about this film yeah Absolutely, and that's a great choice. Uh, we probably picked it on this one more than we usually do on a normal episode. These are valid <laughs> criticisms, so I mean, uh, Chad, mm-hmm. how about you change one thing, and only one thing? I'd like to spend more movie time with the Cenobites. I think it's just, it's true here, and it's true throughout the franchise. And even with your joke, I would absolutely watch Butterball and Chatterer go to White Castle. <laughs> like, get whatever it takes. The It's just painful of, okay, Frank's back. Five minutes, he's gone. And then five more minutes, the Cenobites are gone. I mean, we're building to this. Give me the crescendo I deserve. I also think that when like pizza places started making cinnamon bites, I'm very disappointed that nobody decided to use the Cenobites <laughs> to sell cinnamon bites. 
Very lost opportunity. Um, so it, from a pleasure angle? Yes, absolutely. Cinnabon needs to get on that now. <laughs> Buy these Cinnabites or I will tear your soul apart. <laughs> Not enough threatening angles taken in the marketing industry. Think about mm -mm. that. There you go. Nope. Fears and emotion you can exploit. Um, so my uh, change one thing is going to be the acting. I I I, I kind of came after the four of them earlier. I mean, it's 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 all four of the main roles, and to me, it's the number one thing. If you've got some better actors in here, they're going to make some character decisions with how Larry is portrayed and how I think Julia can go to another level, which is why I threw Isabella Rosalini in there. This is a great character; it's well written, and Claire Higgins is a good villain. But I think you can guys. I think this thing can elevate to like all time great horror movie status with better acting. Mm -hmm. so I, th I think, and I don't know if this was something directed to them by Clive Barker, but when you look at, you know, the, the flashback scene and, and the other scenes where the characters are interacting, it's almost melodramatic at times. And that kind of seems to be the theme throughout that. It's just, it's, it's elevated drama, the, the style of acting some of the actors are doing. Yeah, it feels soap opera-esque. Mm -hmm. Yes. Definitely. It does. Exactly. I keep going back to it again, but like when we did The Exorcist, it's like the acting top to bottom is so good. And if it's not mm -hmm. good, it could come off as goofy. And this, what, so this is soap opera acting. How good could it be with really good actors? So you're saying what should have happened is Clive Barker firing guns behind his actors' ears to motivate got some, It got some <laughs> results. I don't know if it's a good way to treat people, but I got to say it was, oh it was mighty God. effective. <laughs> the methods don't seem to work out, but the product was good. So It was the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So best quote of the movie, Lindsay. I love the line, angels to some, demons to others. Just shows how much they don't care, how they have no stake in it. They're not, you're not going to sway them one way or another they're gonna do what they want to do Absolutely. excellent chad best quote the box you opened it we came <laughs> like just so simplistic but it's just so matter of fact it's yes. a terrible policy because she's just like i don't want this it's a puzzle i don't want to participate in any of this and i feel like they should kind of be like yeah she's no fun to play with this isn't well you know yeah, there should be like a, one of those mattress tag things on the box of like, please do not open this unless you want to experience <laughs> carnal pleasures unknown to any man. Because, yeah, that would totally be my wife. If she loves puzzles. She'd find this thing, she'd solve it, and she'd be tormented for eternity by Cenobites. That's a, <laughs> pulled, a bit yeah, pulled apart by fish hooks on chains. No, thank you. R right? Yeah. Just for being curious. I know. My best quote, I, I kind of didn't take it the right way when you said you just forget the Asian parts there and you don't even like it because the, in the Asian market, when he goes, what's your pleasure? Followed up by another great one of, take it, it's yours. It always was. <laughs> Man, that guy's like has three lines in the movie. They're all my favorite lines and we don't even see his face. I want to spend more time in China with this dude. <laughs> <laughs>
Lindsay, do you want to remind people at home one more time where we can hear you and your efforts? Uh, yeah, you can find me at my YouTube channel. It's my name, Lindsay Washburn. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I always post on there things that I've got going on. And you can also catch me on the Bad Movie Night podcast. We go live every Monday. That episode is posted every Thursday. Have you done Hellraiser 3 yet? Because you should. No, we have not. We're slowly uh, but surely working our way through the Witchcraft series. Oh, no. Which, uh, which has been uh, a journey. I think we're, we just finished 9, and number 10 is on the list. So it's been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Now, we've come full circle here. And on a scale of five stars with half-star intervals, Lindsay, what would you give Hellraiser? I, I really love this movie, but I, I do recognize that it has some issues and some faults. Some not its own faults, you know, just because of the budget and things like that. But uh, I would give it four out of five stars. Okay. And Chad, how about you? You're usually a hard grader here. On a five-star scale, what's Hellraiser going to be? I hate my role in this because everyone's so excited. <laughs> I give this the most loving two and a half stars I can. Mm -hmm. That's what I gave it years ago, and I think it stays. The Cenobites, Pinhead, are amazing, but I just think it struggles to hold that same intrigue after Frank is resurrected. And we've talked about it ad nauseum. The acting and the dubbing just crushes what could be in this movie, so it hurts, it hurts me. I want these things fixed so it could be up there in the four-and-a-half, five-star range for me. Wow, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna follow suit with Lindsay here. It's odd for me to find a movie that has this much wrong with it, but I'm gonna go four stars because the things that are right are so exceptionally right, like mm -hmm. the wardrobe, the makeup, the looks, the character design, and also the story that's the backbone through it, as well as many of the special effects executions through this. So it's hard to overcome bad acting, and it's hard to <laughs> overcome some budgetary constraints, but this movie is actually a very good instance of one of the best cases of overcoming pretty much rough acting. And mm -hmm. it, it does it really well. And that just goes to show you, it, you know, there's all these other facets that go into making a movie. And so often oh, yeah. we're driven by only the story or maybe the story and the actor. And this is a really good case of saying, you know, when they hand out Oscars for all these other th things, this is why you can make a movie off of the environment and the experience they give you because it evokes that emotion that a horror movie is supposed to. And it does it very effectively. I'm made incredibly uneasy and I'm thoroughly scared and I return to it and it still gets me. So it's got high rewatch value too. So I'm, I would like to see it remade because I think lots of money and good actors would, like you said, I think this could go really high for me. Ch okay, Chad. You ready to help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely. I've got the list right here, Russell. So option number one is Hatchet from 2006. We're going to have a slasher theme of these choices. So when a group of tourists in a New Orleans haunted swamp tour find themselves stranded in the wilderness, their evening of fun and spooks turns into a horrific nightmare. Option two, The Burning from 1981. A former summer camp caretaker, horribly burned from a prank gone wrong, lurks around an upstate New York summer camp, bent on killing the teenagers responsible for his disfigurement. Or, option number three, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon from 2006. 
the next great psycho-horror slasher has given a documentary crew exclusive access to his life as he plans his reign of terror over the sleepy town of Glen Echo. With this blockbuster of well-known, well-loved movies, I'm going to go with Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. You won't regret it, sir. <laughs> excellent, excellent slasher. Well, what we won't regret is having Lindsay back on the show someday. So thank you, Lindsay. You've been great to have on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. It's fun to talk about this movie because uh, I really, really enjoy it. And it was nice to really do a deep dive into some of the characters and the, the meaning behind them. So, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us so we want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, even YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook, follow us at Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support our show at Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. So as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? He just wants his machete back.